So this morning, I'm so excited that um, we have Sarah Demarest here to teach us this morning. If you don't know who Sarah is, Sarah is married to Scott. She's mom to Kate <laughs> and two other adult children who are not here this morning. Um, but Sarah, thank you for being here. We are so excited to hear this lesson. But before Sarah comes, we usually do our disciplines, and we have another guest speaker for our disciplines this morning. So Dina Eiserman is going to come and lead us in our disciplines. Um, and if you don't know Dina, she does Saturday Wellspring. She helps lead Saturday Wellspring. But also, if you have kids, you may have heard about the snacks that they have on Wednesday mornings. Dina is responsible for all of those, for the creativity, the making, the distribution, all of it. She's amazing. So, Dina, you want to come on up and lead us in our disciplines? Thank you, Melissa, but it's not me that's amazing, it's God that's amazing. <laughs> I can't do anything without him. So. And Pinterest is like so awesome, you just Google anything and it comes up with all these ideas, so <laughs> and I hardly have to think. Anyway, um, I'm just really privileged to get up here and talk with you guys, and it's fun to see all of your faces, because I'm used to seeing like half-sleepy women on Saturday mornings. <laughs> And you guys are also ready to go. <laughs> and they are too. Um, I was, as I'm reading through my reading plan, I always look for places where it talks about the disciplines because you start to see it everywhere in your Bible. So today we're going to look at Luke. Um, so if you want to start turning there, you can. And then I'm just going to read from, now I'm giving you multiple things to do at the same time. I'm going to read from the back of the notebook, so if you want to look at that, you can. I'm just going to read the our purpose. Um, this is what Janet, Melissa, and I, and all the teachers that teach, this is what we pray for you and work towards for ourselves and for each of you in Wellspring. So let's read the, the purpose together. To equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ in the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Um, and like I said, we're going to read out of Jude this morning, and I think that'll help us to think about the three disciplines that follow the purpose, um, and it'll help us think of what that gospel-transformed life looks like and how when we live that kind of a life, it strengthens the church in its gospel purpose. So before I read from Jude, verse 20 to 23, I just wanted to give a little context. Jude has been warning the church to be aware of false teachers who have crept in unnoticed, and he wants them to be ready to fortify themselves and believers to stand against these ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master, Jesus Christ our Lord, is what he says. Then in verse 16, he says these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Um, and then in verse 19, it says that these are causing divisions. They're worldly people devoid of the spirit. When I read that, it, it sounds so familiar. 
like to what our world looks like and maybe even hopeless but it's not hopeless god has a plan and it though it's clear that these sins must and will be judged in the end and most severely like um but there is mercy and so i'm going to go ahead and read jude 20 and 21 but you beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the holy spirit keep yourselves in the love of god waiting for the mercy of our lord jesus christ that leads to eternal life and i thought that is d1 <laughs> so let's read d1 discipline one and see what the similarities are the faithful woman of god who shepherds her heart worshipfully toward god through the word of god and in particular the gospel so back in jude we can think through what that might have looked like in jude these beloved believing people were called to look different from those ungodly people described in the first part of Jude. They were to be engaged in the work that we call heart shepherding, building themselves up in their most holy faith. The way to hold fast our profession of faith is to hold on in it. And we must build upon it daily, coming to God in his word, to see him and know him, to worship him for the gospel, for his gospel work in our lives through Jesus. And then they were also to pray in the Holy Spirit. And we know that the Holy Spirit helps us when we pray, and he, he um, helps us to pray according to God's word and to God's will. He brings us, brings to mind to us the truth of Jesus, and he helps us to know the mind of God through Christ. We see that in Romans 8, 26 and 27. And to pray under the guidance and influence of the Holy Spirit according to the rule of God's word shows our complete dependence upon God to oppose the spiritual attacks of Satan and of our flesh. And then we see there in Jude that they were to keep themselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. What a, what a, uh, sorry, <laughs> I wrote this little tiny thing. Um, what greater mercy is there in the midst of trial than to wait expectantly for Christ's return? When we have that believing expectation of eternal life, it will arm us against the snares of sin, from Second Peter 3. And a lively faith in the blessed hope will help us to mortify our own cursed lusts, from Titus 2, 11 and 14. And... What Jesus accomplished on the cross leads to eternal life for those who believe. Unbelieving hearts can be transformed into hearts that believe and are saved, ready for every good work. These are the things that Jude wanted to encourage the believing brothers to be engaged in, and we are to do the same. Christians keep themselves in the love of God by growing strong in his word, persevering in prayer, and waiting expectantly for the Lord to come. And later on in Jude, by remembering that it is God who keeps them. He's able to keep them, each one, from stumbling and to present them blameless before the presence of his holy glory with great joy. Um, in 
verse 22 and 23 in Jude, we, it goes on and we see the fruit of these labors. I'll just read it there. It says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear. Hate even the garments stained by flesh. This made me think of D2 and D3. These people were ready now to engage with those ungodly people and to contend for the faith. They could come alongside them with the truth of the gospel that they themselves had been meditating on and soaking on. They could listen to the doubts of their brothers who were tempted to listen to the deceptions of those false teachers, and they could help them see the assurance of their faith in Christ in the gospel. They were ready now to show mercy out of a healthy fear of God because they knew without a doubt who it was and who God was and from the abundant time that they spent reading about him and talking about him in their homes they had kept themselves in the love of God and they had seen how filthy their sin was and even to the point of hating sin and desiring to help others see their sin too and kill it for the glory of God and for the purification of the church. So Jude reminds them of the twofold doctrine of God's protecting care of man's and man's responsibility. So God on the one hand keeps them and presents them without fault to the end, and they on the other hand are to build themselves up in their faith. So that's what we are trying to help you guys and us to, to be equipped to do. Um, our lives are no different today. I'll go ahead and read D1 and D2 just so you can see how I'm connecting those. Um, the faithful woman of God in concern for those in her home and ministers to them with the, her heart fixed on God and his word and with a heart fixed on God and keeping God her God-given ministry within her home a priority the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. May we be these kind of women. May we be faithful women who read and meditate on God's word to keep to get to God and to know him and his gospel and to have it impact our hearts and fill us with his love and compassion for the lost and needy ones around us in our homes and in the church and beyond. Remembering Jude 24 and 25, and where he says, he is able to keep each one from stumbling and to present them blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Um, I wanted to take a few minutes to just point out, point out a resource. I think you guys all should have one of these. If you don't, I think there's some out there for you to grab. But this is a um, prayer booklet that's been put together and revised over the years. And um, it's a really good tool for using, there's scripture in here that is gospel scripture, which I've used a lot too, just like as a prayer every time before I start my small time with God, or you can use it to meditate on or to memorize. Um, that's kind of what I wanted to point out, but there's so many things in here. I would encourage you guys to take a minute to look through it. There's a section that <clears throat> has just 
ways to start out your time with the Lord, um, verses that you can use there is a section that teaches you how to take a passage and turn it into a prayer. So you can pray directly from scripture. There's a section, there's a whole um, like order of prayer that you can use each day if you want to have order in your prayer life, which I find challenging. And it's, that's always a thing that gets pushed off when you're running out of time, I guess, for me anyway. But I would encourage you to make it, make it a priority. Um, and also there's a section that talks about um, Titus 2, which Sarah's going to be teaching on, and it just helps you look at all the discipline or all the qualities of the Titus 2 woman and turn those into prayers for yourself so you can start building those qualities in your own life. Um, that's on page 46 and 47. And there's also going to be a question on the homework coming up soon that'll help you use this. Um, so you'll be forced to use it. <laughs> but anyway, take some time to look through it and it's a really useful tool. And I'm going to just close in prayer and then have Sarah come up and teach you guys. Dear Lord God, I love you and we thank you that you have brought us all together this morning in this way where we can just be united around your word and we can all be hearing the same things. We can all be encouraging one another. Pray that your word would go out powerfully this morning, that you would um, see fit to change us, make us into women who are faithful, Lord, and who look to you for strength, trusting that you will supply all that we need to live in a way that pleases you and honors you, in a way that can, we can be instruments in our homes and in your church so that your name will be lifted high and your truth will go out to this lost world. In your precious son's name we pray, amen. picked up some handouts when you came in. There's an outline there for you to follow along with. Okay, um, and if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Titus 2, because that is what we will be looking at today. Well, I know we've already prayed a few times, but I just can't start teaching without going to the Lord. So we're going to do it again. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can come often and you are always ready to receive us before your throne of grace. Lord, what a joy to be together as your people this morning. Thank you for these women. I pray that this would be an encouragement for them, that your word would produce much fruit in all of our lives. That we would grow in our love for you and our love for one another. Your church would be strengthened, that your word would be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you have this from last time, you can go ahead and pull that out as well. 
So I am just so thankful to be here with you, and I'm excited that we get to look at Titus 2 together at this point in the year. I'm not sure we've ever taught it the third lesson in. Um, but the Wellspring lessons, they're not standalones. They all connect to what we've heard. You know what? The light went off. Is it like on a timer? Okay. Um, all the lessons connect with each other, and they all connect with what we covered in our first week when we looked at the church's vision and purpose, and they connect with what we looked at last time in this folder and understanding what it means that believers are in a mixed condition. And it connects with the Wellspring disciplines. Um, so, if you, um, so if you've got this chart, I want to show you where Titus 2 fits in your chart. Um, you remember Smed said, this is the you are here panel right here. This is where we're at. We're in a mixed condition and Titus 2 speaks to us right here. In this condition, we need instruction how to live as believers because when we get saved, we don't just automatically know. We don't just automatically know and we don't just automatically know how to change to become like God has called us to live. Part of being in a mixed condition is that we are weak and we're dependent on the Lord and we're dependent on his word to know and to do what pleases him. And at the same time, in this mixed condition, we are new creations. We have new desires and we have new abilities in Christ to live as God designed. At the bottom of the pamphlet, you see that tan section that says regeneration? That's where we get saved, that's salvation. Um, and that explains what happens between what we used to be and what we are now as believers. Um, that's what happens. All the things you see there at the bottom, that's what happens when God saves us. It's the foundation for our response to Titus 2. What God has accomplished in us through the gospel um, and what Christ has purchased for us at the cross is the whole reason why we can and why we want to live in such a way that God is glorified. And remember, that's what we're aiming at as a church. We saw that in our very first lesson. It's these gospel realities and promises that fuel our perseverance to fight sin and to run hard after righteousness because life in this mixed condition is a fight you know over here at the beginning on the left there was no fight over here we just sinned and over here when we're with jesus there won't be a fight there either but right now it is a fight it's not a fight to be saved um, because our salvation is already accomplished but it's a fight to walk in newness of life and to persevere in the faith to grow in our sanctification. Um, and Titus 2 describes what it is that we're to be striving after as women in the church. So that's how Titus 2 fits in the chart. And our lesson today also brings the, all the disciplines together. It's what Dina was teaching from the back of the binder here. We're gonna see God's heart for the home, for discipline two. The relationships and the responsibilities of the home are prominent in the roles that God has given us in Titus 2. And we're going to see God's heart for discipline 3, for ministry. Women have a responsibility to help one another grow in godliness. That is a huge part of Titus 2, and it guides women's ministries here at Grace Bible Church. And all of this is rooted in discipline 1. It's our own personal heart shepherding with the word. These are not just behaviors 
that we put on externally. Rather, they are the fruit of God's work in us as we faithfully meet with him in his word. So if you've got your Bible open to Titus, we'll jump in to our study. So first of all, just a little background from the book of Titus. Now in Titus, Paul was addressing a problem. The churches in Crete were out of order, and that's why Titus was there. The churches needed to be put in order, and they needed elders to help bring that about. Now in chapter 1, Paul describes a problem in the churches. There were rebellious men who said they knew God, but they denied him by their actions. And they were having an influence. Households were being thrown into confusion because these men were teaching things they should not teach. There was unsound teaching and ungodly living, and it resulted in upheaval. So in chapter 2, Paul wrote to Titus, As for you, you speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. See, unsound teaching had to be met with sound teaching, with sound doctrine. And the church must be instructed how to live in light of that sound doctrine. And that's what follows in chapter 2. For men and for women, even for slaves, for everyone in the church. Because when there are people who profess to know God, but they deny him by how they live, it is all the more essential that genuine believers bear the fruit of God's transforming grace. Paul describes that grace beginning in Titus 2 verse 11. So you can follow along there. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And what else does it do? It instructs, it's instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. He's saying we need to deny, grace tells us to deny all those things on the left side of the panel that we were before we knew Christ. And it instructs us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And that's what's been described in the earlier verses in Titus 2. And then, listen to what Paul writes about Jesus. He said that grace instructs us to be godly and to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us, to set us free from every lawless deed. And, now listen carefully, why Jesus gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. See, grace saves us and it instructs us to live out what Christ has accomplished for us. Grace saves us and it instructs us to live out what Christ has accomplished for us. Jesus transforms us from being worthless for any good deed to being zealous for good deeds as his own possession. Believer, you belong to Jesus. You are his. And Titus 2, 3 through 5 is where we find what it looks like to be women who have been purified by Jesus. Women who belong to Jesus and who are zealous and wholehearted about glorifying God with how we live. So let's read what grace instructs us as women to do in Titus 2, 3 through 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that 
they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So Titus 2 is all about grace-directed living and grace-directed relationships. Now, near the bottom of page one on your outline, you can see the summary of our passage. The word of God is honored through gospel-transformed older women training gospel-transformed younger women. And as we go through these verses, we'll talk not only about the what, what's meant by each of these qualities, but we'll also look at why, and we're going to talk about how. Now we're going to find the why, or we did, we can see the why at the end of verse 5, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. This goes back to that first lesson on the vision of Grace Bible Church. We want to be Titus to women because that's how we glorify God as a church. This kind of living protects God's word from dishonor. It shows how glorious God is, how powerful his salvation is, and how beautiful the roles are that he has designed for us as women. And to understand how, we will look at each of these qualities and how they flow out of Discipline 1 and the Gospel. Now in Wellspring, we use the phrase, shepherding your heart, a lot. But we don't want this just to be a term that we throw around. We need to know what we're getting at when we say, shepherd your heart. Now shepherding your heart means that you're using God's word to direct your life. Your heart is you. It's your inner man. It's the source of everything that comes out of you. Your thoughts, attitudes, emotions, your will, your choices, your desires, your words, your actions. Everything flows from your heart. So shepherding your heart, as Smed said, is using God's word to tell your mind what to think and your emotions what to feel, and your mouth what to say. It's using God's word to direct everything that's going on inside of you so that everything that comes out is glorifying to God. And so we're going to return to this throughout the lesson to see how to shepherd our hearts, um, um, so that how to shepherd our hearts to obey Titus 2 is really clear. We're going to go over and over and over because we want to connect the dots between discipline one and shepherding our hearts to living out these qualities we see in Titus 2. All right, so go ahead and look at Roman numeral one, what older women transformed by the gospel must be. Older women here most likely refers to those who are at least 50 or 60 women whose children are grown. Paul is laying out a job description for older women. Now, when we come to this season where the demands of our household are not as great, we must not think that we're not needed anymore or that it's just time to focus on me. That is not God's plan for us at all. He has given us a role that protects his word from dishonor. So we have the privilege and the responsibility to encourage young women. This is not describing just some older women in the church. This isn't just for elders' wives or deacons' wives or ladies who want to teach Sunday school. This is um, for all believers. This is what it looks like for women to follow Jesus. This is what we all need to be aiming for. And there's an implication here. You know, older is a relative term. 
everyone is older than someone. And while it's true that uh, most older women have more opportunity for this because of their season of life, all of us can be doing this to some degree with those who are younger, perhaps those who are younger in age or those who are younger in the faith. And all of us benefit from being teachable younger women, no matter our age, as we learn from other women and we let them spur us on in our walk with the Lord. Now we build these relationships in many different ways in the church. It could be women with whom we serve, it could be small group, certainly can happen here in Wellspring. We should be cultivating that with each other. And we also have a mentoring ministry for women here at Grace Bible Church. There are times when we might benefit from a more formalized relationship with an older or younger woman. Um, there are times, um, yeah, there's just times where that can be really helpful to have some help forming that connection. And so you can find out more information about that on the info table, or you can talk to Chris in the pink sweater. Um, her contact info is also at the end of the outline if you want to talk to her more about that. All right, so given the importance of this privilege, let's look at the kind of women we must be. The character of a gospel-transformed older woman is described in four ways. She is reverent in her behavior. She is not a malicious gossip. She is not enslaved to much wine. And she teaches what is good. Our lives are to set an example that others can follow. These qualities make us the kind of women who are ready to encourage younger women and who can do that with integrity. This doesn't mean that we are perfect. It doesn't mean that we've arrived, but it does mean that we love what God has purchased us to be by the blood of his son. And we're committed to growing in these ways so that we can help younger women grow too. Now on page two of your outline, you'll find reverent in behavior. The word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple. It means we're to do everything with a view toward worshiping God. We're to see all of our lives as set apart for God. It's worshiping God in all we do. Reverence is not a mystical spirituality, and it's not living by impressions of what we think God might be saying to us apart from his word. Rather, true reverence loves to hear from God in his word. And so we shepherd our hearts to meet with God in his word. We don't pick and choose just what we want, but we joyfully and humbly, hum, we joyfully humble ourselves under the whole counsel of God's word. And we respond in submission and reverence because of who God is. He is the creator of the universe, and he sustains all things. He is perfect in every way. He is all-powerful. He is holy. He is wise. He is good. He is the rightful ruler of our lives. And he has graciously condescended to make us his own through the precious blood of his son. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him, and we live for his glory as his beloved children not just in our quiet time, not just when we're at church, but always, especially when nobody's watching. This is God's call on all of his people. We are all to live lives, offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God as we obey him in all things. 
and older women are to be exemplary in this so that we can encourage other women to follow Christ in every part of life. Number two on your outline then is not malicious gossips. Now the Greek word for malicious gossips is translated as slanderers in the ESV and 34 times in the New Testament, this word is the word used for the devil, the one who accuses and slanders us before God. Slander is literally diabolical. A malicious gossip is one who unjustly criticizes in a way which hurts and condemns. It makes charges that bring down or destroy. It can show up in what we say as well as in what we post, text, email, in any way available for expressing ourselves. Malicious gossip is a failure to respond to others in a way that pleases the Lord. It is never right to tear others down with our words, particularly in the eyes of others. So what kind of heart shepherding does this require? Well, putting a stop to sinful words is not simply a matter of controlling what comes out of our mouth. It means we're ruling over our thoughts and our feelings towards others with God's word. You know, it's easy to gossip about others. That requires no heart shepherding at all. But believers have been set free from slavery to sin, and God's grace commands us to deny ungodliness such as gossip. And so we must shepherd our hearts. Again, we must tell our emotions what to feel, tell our thoughts what to think, tell our mouths what to say. And that begins with the gospel. We need to remind ourselves of our own sin and the mercy God has shown to us in purchasing our forgiveness through the blood of his son. And then by God's grace, we turn away from gossip and all the sinful thinking behind it. God's grace teaches us to hate that kind of a sinful response to others. And instead, out of a gratitude to God for his mercy, we get to be conduits of his mercy to others. And this is, again, this is a call for all believers, but it's an area where older women need to be especially careful. It's absolutely necessary for the ministry God has given us with one another and for protecting his word from dishonor. See, when we allow gossip in our lives, in effect, we're saying we know better than God's word how to respond to someone's weakness. And that dishonors God's word. We cannot protect God's word from dishonor unless we ourselves honor it through our own obedience. Okay, page three on your outline. Number three is older women are not to be enslaved to much wine. This means to not be mastered by alcohol. Nowhere does Paul totally forbid wine, but in multiple places he condemns drunkenness. And the emphasis here is on the word enslaved. It's a term of bondage. It could be wine. Clearly that was a problem with the women in the churches on Crete. And still today, many see alcohol as an escape. The reality, however, is that it only enslaves those who hope to escape through it. And alcohol is not the only thing that enslaves when we seek to escape or find comfort through it. It could be food, shopping, entertainment, our phone, exercise, the list just goes on and on. We are in danger of bondage if we turn to those things for escape or comfort 
to make us happy or to help us cope. These things can be enjoyed with self-control and with thankfulness as good gifts from God, but God himself is to be our comfort and our refuge. True joy is found in him alone. So how does that connect with discipline one, with shepherding our hearts? Well, in order not to be enslaved with the things of this world or to the lusts of our own flesh, we must be daily renewing our mind with the truth of God's word. For example, the truth that the believer has been set free from slavery to sin. <clears throat> sin is no longer our master. We're now slaves of God and slaves of righteousness. And in the gospel, we have all things in Christ. We've been learning that in Colossians. Now here's what's not true. It is not true that the gospel gives us forgiveness, that it gives us salvation, but that we have to look elsewhere, elsewhere for what we need to deal with life. That is not true at all. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. The great marvel of the gospel is that God gives us himself, and his word promises that his nearness is our good and that he never leaves and he never forsakes us. And yet finding our comfort in him is something that has to be learned. It doesn't just happen automatically because you're a believer. It requires walking by faith and not by sight, walking by God's word and not by our emotions. You know, many times when we're tired, lonely, stressed, discouraged, fearful, anxious, sad, angry, maybe just overall emotional. What we think we need at those times and what we want is not what God says we need. It's not what God provides. But God's provision is better than any other kind of comfort, than what we think we want for ourselves. And that's why we have to respond in faith, trusting God instead of ourselves, trusting his purposes for us in trials, and accepting solace in knowing and believing the promises of God rather than fleshly comforts that temporarily distract us from our troubles. It means disciplining ourselves to trust God's help through obedience. See, at the end of a stressful day, God's word calls us to pray with thanksgiving and to entrust ourselves to the protection of his peace rather than escaping by distracting and numbing ourselves. Trusting the Lord through difficulties brings maturity and it brings hope, but relying on anything else leads to idolatry, which only enslaves and is offensive to God. Seeking comfort apart from the Lord dishonors God's word because it says God's word is wrong, that God is not sufficient for our every need and that he doesn't know or he's not able or he's not willing to provide what is best for his children. And how can we help other women discover all they need in Christ if we ourselves aren't convinced that he's everything we need? All right, so we have seen that the reverent woman shepherds her heart away from malicious gossip, away from bondage to alcohol or anything, in order to find her joy and her comfort and her peace in Jesus Christ alone. This is the fruit of the gospel in an older woman's life. 
finally, number four, older women are to teach what is good, what is beneficial. And we do this in lots of ways, through our example and also with our words in conversations, coffee dates, small group, as well as more formal teaching opportunities like here in Wellspring. So what does discipline one have to do with being a teacher of what is good? Well, first of all, we need to know what is good. And we find that in God's word. It's what we're learning every day as we meet with God in his word and respond in loving obedience. Remember what this is aiming at. It's aimed at helping young women live out their faith in Jesus Christ in the details of everyday life so that the word of God is not dishonored. And we can't do that unless we ourselves are diligently shepherding our own hearts with God's word throughout the day so that we can teach others how good God is, how good his ways are. This is what we get to help young women understand. And did you notice it wasn't Titus who was told to do this? We get to do this. Older women get to help younger women learn to honor the Lord in every part of life. And that is just a huge joy and privilege. Okay, now go ahead and turn to page four, Roman numeral two on your outline, what transformed older women must train the young women to be. Okay, as we've already said, this is God's job description for older women. And this word encourage, at the beginning of verse four, uh, when it says that the older women may encourage the young women, it's related to the word for sensible used throughout the book of Titus. And as we'll see, sensible carries the idea of a sound mind. Similarly, encourage means to make of a sound mind, to instruct someone to behave wisely and properly. That's our ministry with younger women. So we need to cultivate relationships with women in different seasons of life from our own. We need to be available and look for ways we can encourage younger women. And young women, this is a really good place just to stop and evaluate where do you look for wisdom? Where do you look for counsel? You know, one trend that has come with the internet is that when we have a question, many of us just ask Google, right? Before we ask a trusted sister in the Lord. And many of the popular social media experts in relationships, parenting, home management, marriage, they are not necessarily older or wiser. Titus 2 says you need older women to teach and encourage you. And that takes humility and grace. You have to be teachable, but you need to seek this out. You need to cultivate relationships with older women, women who are in a different season of life from you. This honors God's word. It glorifies God when believing women help one another grow in Christ-likeness. So let's read Titus 2, 4 and 5 again and notice what it is the older women are to teach the young women. So older women are to be what we've seen in verse 3, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And this is addressing all women, whether or not we are married, whether or not we have children, 
this list begins by addressing those important relationships because they are very common and it's important that we understand God's design for them. But in the book of Titus, Paul is concerned with setting the whole church in order and God builds the church from people out of every season of life. So there are no spectators here. These verses speak to all of us. All right, let's look at this first quality, to love her husband. In the Greek, this is literally to be a husband lover. It describes who a woman is and not just what she does. Now, a command like this can be easy to blow right by. I mean, of course we know we should love our husband, right? But we need to slow down and understand all we can about this love from the context. First of all, this is a love that needs to be taught. It is not natural. It is not intuitive. It certainly isn't what was going, it isn't what we're going to pick up from the world around us. And that is why older women need to teach it to the younger women. And this love is a product of God's grace in our lives. We saw that at the end of Titus 2. God's grace instructs us to be godly in these ways. And this love is at the top of the list for priorities in a woman's life. After her walk with the Lord, her husband is to be first in her affections and priorities. And so the context shows we need to give this careful consideration. So first, we said this is a love that is taught. And what is the textbook? But God's word. And what's the ultimate example? But the cross. It's self-giving love modeled after God's love for us through his son. It's the love described in 1 Corinthians 13. It's patient, it's kind, it's not proud, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily provoked, it doesn't keep a record of wrong, and it endures. And this love is the fruit of God's grace, even as God pours out his grace and mercy and love on us in spite of all our sin. So this love is gracious, and it's merciful, and it's quick to forgive, it's humble, being more concerned with our own sin than with the shortcomings of our husband or of others. It flows out of the love God has poured into our hearts, and it isn't dependent on our husband's response. It's filled with thankfulness and contentment and joy. It's being a good friend to your husband and pursuing unity with him. It's respecting him and encouraging him. And it has a high priority in a woman's life. We need to give our best to our husband, especially when children have many immediate needs. We need to keep a tender heart for our husband and love him well. We're never off duty from loving our husband. Love should be heard in our tone of voice, in our demeanor, in our facial expressions, in how we think and talk about him. It means loving him even when you're apart, honoring him with your choices, your spending, your own heart shepherding, and your parenting. And it's being his helper rather than waiting for him and expecting him to be yours. If you are not married, you still need to be a husband lover in the sense that you understand how God values marriage so that you can encourage your married friends to love their husbands like this. And you need to love the people around you, in your home, in your family, your church, your workplace, your neighborhood. This is a love that puts God's work in us on display. It points to him. 
It looks different outside of marriage, but the foundational principles of selflessness and grace are the same. So again, how do we shepherd our hearts to love like this? It is not a love that you wake up in the morning naturally ready to pour out. Our natural bent is to love ourselves, right? We, our natural bent is to feel entitled to appreciation or reciprocation or a reward for the love and the service that we give. But we are new creations in Christ. And because of the gospel, we have a new reason to love and we have new desires to love and new abilities to love. We have the ability to repent of self-love and the way that that interferes with loving others. And that starts with discipline one, beholding God in his word, reminding ourselves of his power and his perfection, as well as his mercy and his love. Seeing his love in the gospel, that while we were his enemies, he saved us. See, it's in drawing near to God and his word that we're renewed and we're strengthened to love like God loves not because of what anyone else does or doesn't do. We are humbled to repent of the selfishness and pride which can so easily pollute and poison our love. This is why if you sit down with an older woman and you ask for help in your marriage, she may very well ask you, how is your time in the word? And that is not because being in the word is just a magic formula that guarantees you will never have any marriage issues. But there is um, the, uh, we won't be able to love our husbands well apart from shepherding our heart with God's word and the gospel. This is what glorifies God when we humble ourselves before him and his word and then help others use God's word to love others. All right, number two, children lovers. Older women are to encourage young women to love their children or to be children lovers. And although the most obvious application is to mothers, we all have the privilege and responsibility to love and cherish children. There are children around all of us whom we can love, especially here at Grace Bible Church. And it's so encouraging to see how so many of you are children lovers. As with loving our husbands, this is a love which must be taught. It is the fruit of God's grace in our lives, and it's a priority right after loving our husband. Now, Matthew Henry explains it like this. This is a paraphrase, but I just thought it was super helpful to hear um, a pastor from another century explain what it means to be a lover of children. So he says, older women are to teach young women to love their children, not with a natural affection only, but with a spiritual one, a love springing from a holy, sanctified heart and regulated by God's word. He's saying that this love flows from discipline one and drawing near to God in his word. And he continues, not a fond, foolish love where you are indulging them in evil or neglecting due reproof and correction where necessary, but with biblical love, teaching them the Christian faith, including God's word, God's character, and the gospel, forming their life and their manners aright taking care of their souls as well as their bodies, of their spiritual welfare as well as their temporal, and taking care of the former chiefly and in the first place. That is to say, we are to prioritize the care of our children's souls. And we should add 
that all of this is to be done with patience, kindness, firmness, and not being surprised or annoyed at children's need for shepherding. To not be surprised that they need training and care, but rather faithfully serving the Lord with thankfulness for the privilege of teaching them about our Savior. So again, how can we possibly love like this? As with everything else, it begins with shepherding our own hearts with the gospel. We need to be continually mulling it over in our minds, God's love for us. Now the New Testament gives us two yard yardsticks for God's love. The first is the cross. We've already talked about that. That Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But the second is the gift of being his children. In 1 John 3.1 it says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. We were dead in our sins, living in the lusts of our flesh and minds, but God redeemed us out of the slave market of sin and adopted us as his own beloved children. So our love for children is an overflow of our Father's love for us. No matter what challenges children may bring or how they may put us out of our comfort zone, we have a Heavenly Father who lovingly bears with us as His children. He provides, teaches, disciplines, refines, comforts, and forgives over and over again. And He patiently and tenderly labors to conform us to the image of His Son, Jesus. And it's in submitting to His tender care for us that we find grace to tenderly love the children in our lives. Our love gives them a taste of his love. Okay, that brings us to sensible. We're on page five of the outline. The command to be sensible is all over the book of Titus. Apparently there was a real lack of it in the churches on Crete. But what exactly is it? Well, being sensible deals primarily with the mind or the thought life. It means not running for the edges or the extremes in our thinking, but rather striving for reserved, balanced thinking that's not easily moved off center. It gives each situation its proper weight, not too much, not too little. It's being self-controlled with our thoughts and our emotions. So how do we shepherd our hearts to be sensible? How does remembering the gospel help us? Well, last time Smed told us right at the beginning that because we're in a mixed condition, we can shepherd our hearts, and we must shepherd our hearts. Our hearts are still easily deceived and, we can, and can easily lead us into thinking that is not balanced, that runs to the edges, that's driven by emotion rather than trust in God. But because of the gospel, we're not slaves to sinful thinking. God has given us a spirit of a sound mind, so now we can do things with our mind that we could never do before he saved us. Now we can renew our minds with God's word, and we can be sensible viewing our circumstances in light of God's word. That does not mean that there are not weighty, important matters for us to think about. There are lots of them, but sensibility enables us to think about them in the context of God's goodness and his sovereignty and his wisdom and his commands. 
the gospel frees us and calls us to make our biggest concern in every situation the glory of God. Asking ourselves, okay, how does God's word speak into this? What glorifies God in this? How can I be pleasing to the Lord in this? That's how the gospel leads us to be sensible. It protects God's word from dishonor because we're giving God's word the weight in how we think. All right, number four is pure. Pure means clean, spotless, morally pure in all ways. Throughout the book of Titus, purity and impurity are contrasted. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. See, when Paul talks about purity, he's including our minds. He's including our conscience. And that is all connected to our heart. It's an inward purity that directs all of our outward choices. Purity has the idea of being unmixed or unpolluted. Now, this is a call to have unmixed, pure affections for the Lord, rejecting and turning away from everything that competes for our affections, which rightly belong only to our Savior. And when our affections for Him are pure, the overflow of that will be purity in our devotion to our husband, purity in all our relationships. It will be seen in our clothing, in our words, in our thoughts. It will guide what we allow into our eyes and our ears. We will not be perfectly pure until that day when we are with Jesus face to face. But listen to 1 John 3, 2 and what it says about being pure. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he, Jesus, appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, this hope of seeing Jesus and being like Jesus, purifies himself just as he is pure. See, this confidence that we will see Jesus one day makes us want to purify ourselves now. It's gospel promises like this that we use to shepherd our hearts. We want them to be like the wallpaper in our mind or like the background music in our head so that our pursuit of purity points to our Savior's purity and our hope of seeing him. It is a daily fight. You know, it's hard enough to diligently fight the residual impurity of our own heart. So why would we ever want to introduce more impurity through what we watch? what we listen to, what we read, what we choose to think about. Because once we let something in, it just wants to stay, right? It's so much easier to keep out that impurity in the first place. Now, because we are in a mixed condition, this battle for purity is not easy, and it is ongoing, but we can fight. Before we knew the Lord, we had no ability or desire to fight for purity, but Christ has purified us to be his and in him we have everything we need in this fight for purity and so we fight eagerly anticipating that day when we will see jesus and the fight will be over okay that brings us then to workers at home we're at page six on your outline i believe now for most of us our experience with work has primarily to do with a job or maybe school where there's someone else telling us what to do 
um, holding us accountable. They give us a paycheck or they give us grades. Um, and we know that someone will be evaluating our work. But being a worker at home is different, isn't it? There's, this is a work that is done out of love for our Savior. And that makes it noble work. It's an act of worship to God. So what exactly does it mean to be a worker at home? Well, this is an exhortation to embrace the priority of the work and the relationships right where we live. Older women must be an example to the younger women of how to keep a priority on being a worker at home. It is listed here right between purity and kindness. It is no more optional than the rest of this list, no matter our age and no matter our stage. It isn't optional if we live alone or if our kids are in school. God's work for us in our home has a purpose, and God's word is dishonored when we neglect it. Now, we've already talked about some of the relationships in our home, but all of the relationships in our home are involved in our work in our home, making it the pattern of our lives to honor others above ourselves, being the aroma of Christ, and gently cultivating conversations that make much of our Lord. Whether it's people you live with, like immediate family or roommates, <clears throat> or people who visit your home. Working in our home allows our home to be useful in ministering to others. Being a worker at home doesn't mean simply to be at home. Our homes are not a place where we have the freedom biblically to be lazy or selfish. Rather, it is working. It's serving and managing our homes to help them run smoothly. Often it includes meeting needs, right? Preparing meals and washing clothes, cleaning. It might mean organizing um, our home and our schedule so that life goes more smoothly for everyone there. It could mean being sure to have everyone's clothes ready for church the night before or planning your small group day to make it easy, as easy as possible to be the small group, you know, allowing time to get dinner ready and those kinds of things. And in some seasons, the work of our home is so demanding that there's not a lot of time and energy left over for anything else, even for good things. Um, and in other seasons, the demands are, are lighter and we do have more opportunity to serve others and to minister to them. There are also seasons when it's appropriate for a woman to not only be a worker in her home, but also to be in the workplace, to be employed in some way. But we need to give thoughtful consideration to how we can be faithful as workers at home, giving our home the same value God does, even when we also work outside our home. And so if you're married, you need to be praying and talking with your husband to have wisdom and unity about these decisions, protecting your role as a worker in your home. God is the one who prepared these works for us in our home. He's the one that we're serving, and he is the one to be glorified. He's the one who supplies his abundant grace for our work in the home. It is not in vain. The work of our home puts God's work of salvation in us on display. All right, that brings us to kind. Um, this is a kindness or goodness that comes from the heart, and then it overflows into words and actions that benefit others. It's an eagerness to do good to others and doing everything with an attitude of kindness, showing kindness with our words, our tone, even facial expressions. When we are not kind, it reveals something about our hearts. It reveals what we truly love, what we are worshiping in that moment. Maybe it's convenience or respect or our schedule. It might be something really good, but when those things become idols in our heart, we have to repent. 
not only of our unkind words or selfish actions, but most importantly, we repent of loving anything more than our Savior, of loving anything so much that we're willing to sin against our Savior. And so again, we shepherd our hearts with the gospel where we behold the kindness of God. We saw that in our homework, right? In Titus 3, God's kindness to us is our motivation to be kind. It's his kindness that allows us to be kind when others are not, when we feel unappreciated or overwhelmed or disrespected or just plain tired. Kindness is not a reaction to those around us, but it is a reflection of our Heavenly Father. And remembering and treasuring his kindness to us, especially in saving us, is the very best way to have a heart of kindness in all that we do. All right, number seven, being subject to their own husbands. We're on page seven of the outline. Finally, we wrap up this list of what gospel-transformed older women are to model and teach for gospel-transformed younger women with being subject to their own husbands. As we heard a few weeks ago from the sermon on Colossians 3 that Josh preached, being subject means to submit. It's to voluntarily line ourselves up under the authority God has ordained for us. In this case, our husband. It's a personal choice we make, and it's an abiding attitude and disposition that we are to embrace. It's to be the ongoing pattern in how we relate to our husband, and it's to be done with joy, without resentment, without discontentment, but it's because it is done out of trust in our Savior. It is not based on the diligence of our husband to appropriately use his authority or on his competency to lead, because as Josh said, if that were the case, no wife would have to subject herself. Because everyone falls, falls short. Every man is a sinner. We are not to be looking for ways to remove ourselves from this role. See, God established this role from creation. It's not related to our value, our abilities, or our intelligence at all. Women have spiritual equality with men. We equally bear God's image, and we have an equal need for and access to salvation through Jesus Christ. But God gives us different roles to display something about himself. We need to look no further than the relationship between Jesus and God the Father to see the beauty of submission. Now, we might be tempted to think that if our husband were God, it'd be easy to submit too. But Jesus submitted to his father, even when that meant submitting himself to evil men to the point of death on a cross. Just think about that. There would be no salvation without submission. Submission is a wonderful gift of God. It goes right along with all these other qualities we've seen here as ways for us to show what God's grace has accomplished in us. It's an expression of love. But the world would have us think that it's an ugly, dehumanizing, oppressive social construct. And that fits right in to who we were before we knew Christ, where we just loved our own self-rule and we hated the idea that anyone else had a right to tell us what to do. And even as believers in this mixed condition, we can, we can still find that residue of the old man, deceiving ourselves into thinking that we actually know better than God does, that self-rule is better than submitting to any human being. But this struggle is nothing new. It began in Genesis 3, and it was still an issue here in Titus 2, 65 AD. But God's word tells us submission is good, 
and it needs to be taught. We need to be taught how to shepherd our hearts away from trusting in our own self-rule and trusting God's rule for us through the authorities he ordains. And though marriage is specifically addressed here, there are principles of submission that need to apply in other areas of life as well. God's common grace to society is seen in the authority structures he has established, not only in the home, but also in the church, in the workplace, and in the government. There would be absolute disorder without it. And as believers, we have a unique opportunity to display our trust in our Savior through our submission. All right, so to understand submission to our husband in particular, we need to understand God's purposes for marriage. God created marriage. It wasn't good for Adam to be alone, so God created a suitable helper for him. A wife has the place to help her husband in a way that no one else can. God didn't give Adam someone just like himself. Rather, God gave him a wife, a woman, to complement him so that together they could uniquely display the image of God. See, in marriage, two become one. A husband and wife are joined together, and together they have a unique ability to display the oneness of the Godhead. And this idea of oneness and unity helps us understand submission. See, the heart of a Christian wife is to do her husband good, to be a suitable helper to him, to respect him, to love him, to have unity with him. And our submission helps us to do these things. What we are called to as wives is not blind obedience that relinquishes all responsibility and joy. It is not viewing our husband as a taskmaster. That is not honoring to our husband or to the Lord because that's not what marriage is. Rather, we submit as an expression of trust in Jesus and with the aim of cultivating oneness in our marriage. Submission does not mean that the husband wins every disagreement. Marriage is not a tug of war to see who gets their way. Rather, it means that we're aiming at what glorifies the Lord together. We're aiming at what is wise and what strengthens our marriage and what strengthens our family. And we do that with a submissive attitude, encouraging our husband's leadership, trying hard to understand his perspective, gently adding our perspective where it might help our husband lead our family in honoring the Lord and being supportive of our husband's ideas, his plans, his decisions. This requires self-control and patience, asking our husband when would be the best time to have a good conversation about these important matters. And it means being humble and ready to follow even when our preference might be different than our husband's. Now certainly this is not always easy. Marriage is the union of one sinner to another sinner. And husbands are not always good leaders any more than we are always good followers. If our husband wants us to sin, we do need to humbly and respectfully decline. If there is abuse, we need to seek the help of others in the church to discern a path of safety and wisdom while we remain faithful to our marriage vows. But as Josh pointed out in Colossians, Paul didn't give this instruction with a list of exceptions and explanations for every different challenge we might encounter. Rather, he's describing a heart disposition based on trust in the Lord a purposeful decision to line ourselves up under our husband's leadership as the best posture for us to help him and to do him good and to display the love and devotion that the church has for our Savior Jesus Christ. 
So how do we shepherd our heart to this kind of attitude? How do we help other women also learn to submit? Well, once again, we look to Jesus. We remind ourselves of the beauty of submission, and we submit entrusting ourselves to our Heavenly Father. Even when our earthly leader is not trustworthy, our Father in Heaven is always faithful. We entrust ourselves to Him, and we live lives connected with the body of Christ, letting others help us navigate the challenges we face. Well, finally, number three, what happens when transformed women are all they should be? Well, Titus 2, 3 through 5 has painted for us a God-inspired picture of gospel-transformed women helping one another live Christ-exalting lives. Throughout the lesson, we have pointed to God's purpose for this at the end of verse 5, that the word of God not be dishonored. And we can think of this like concentric circles, like throwing a pebble into a pond and the ripples that come out from that. The very center is our own hearts being impacted by the word of God. And then we shepherd our hearts with the truth of the word and with that gospel all day long, beginning in our homes and expanding into our church and every place that God places us to be a light for him, living out these Titus 2 instructions together. And as we do that, God's word is honored and God is glorified. And that is why we never graduate from Titus 2. Some of you who've been in Wellspring for a while thought I was going to say Discipline 1, and you don't graduate from that either. But we never graduate from Titus 2 either. So that's a new way to think about Titus 2. We never graduate from it. Our salvation is not just about ourselves, not just about us individually. It's about giving God glory as we grow together as a body, displaying his powerful work in us. All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, for making it clear in your word, your design for your people, and giving us such an amazing privilege of knowing you and Lord, having this responsibility and this privilege of living in such a way that you get glorified, that your word is honored. We get to help others grow, and others get to help us grow. And Lord, with all that said, as awesome as that is, Lord, this is a fire hose. There's so much here. Lord God, we will be pressing on. We need to be pressing on till our dying breath to be this kind of women, to be these kind of women. So Lord, I pray that today that there would be none who would be discouraged, but Lord, that each of us would be sensitive to what it is your spirit is teaching us from this passage to persevere daily in shepherding our hearts with your word and living out what you've designed for us. Lord, I pray for the discussion groups, that the discussion be sweet and rich, that everyone would leave encouraged and more in love with you. In Jesus' name, amen.